So tonight I'd like to talk about the benefits of non-doing. Non-doing. I think uh, meditation can be rightly viewed as both a science and an art. And I think we love the science, but we're a little wary of the art. The science provides a structure. It, provi- it provides us a sense of, of a task and a pretty well-developed development and cultivation along that path. It gives us some sense of progress and it gives us some sense of movement within that cultivation. Uh, And it gives us some posture of being right because we see it's working. I mean, it's hard to argue that if you stare at your nose tip that the science says that over time, the graph of your ability to attend will be in a positive direction. Now, it's not a straight line linear. It's much more of an up and down, but the the jags and peaks go in a positive direction. That's plottable. Over time, you can plot it. Hours on the cushion, number of breaths noticed. (laughs) And it has, it's a fact. No question. I mean, I got into the science with such fervency, and I'm not suggesting you do this, I decided to close myself in a closet for a weekend and hold myself to the science of the... And I'd come out to, you know, go to the bathroom, but I was a little weird and... (laughs) (laughs) But I, the science was what I grabbed. You know, I came from a scientific family. I have a scientific perspective. This is a science. So let's just do the work and let the science unfold. And I had such a strong uh, ardency along those lines that one of my teachers had to tap me on the shoulder and tell me to loosen up a little uh, because I, I, I just the muscle of that uh, felt so good in its cultivation and in its training. So I was the master of effort, of scientific effort. So when I speak to you from that, I really know that place. And uh, I love to be told what to do rather than to actually see. And science is just that, you know, if you are told what to do, then the experiments should be replicable for everyone. And so that's all I needed. And I felt the progress of it. I felt the science paying off. And I felt all of the accompanying wondrous states that accompany that science. So much for science. Now we come to the art. Whoa, we're in a completely different dimension here. The science can only take us so far. 
And then, as the Buddha said, you have to get off the raft and traverse a land that is completely unfamiliar. The loss of control. The loss of ambitious effort. The absence of certainty and security. And the art of intuition, really, and by that I don't mean what you feel about something, because at some point an emotion is as unreliable as a thought, and you don't govern your actions on an emotion because you happen to feel something about someone, which is what we usually mean by intuition. I mean an art form that cannot be cultivated through will. And that was threw me into a completely different sphere altogether. And I realized that the Buddhist teaching was not a flow chart. It wasn't like my chemistry labs. You know, it wasn't, didn't give you a, a certainty of result. It didn't, at some point, it couldn't tell you how to act. It couldn't tell you what to do. And it threw me back because what is hidden under the science is self-doubt. You don't have to ever see your self-doubt when you have the certainty of the experiment in front of you. But what the art exposes is just that. The, where you feel unempowered, where you feel at a loss, where you feel um, unable to move, where it throws you back on your unworthiness. Because if there is any unworthiness, it will express itself within the art of practice, not within the science of practice. And so, at some point, I realized that all of the Dharma is really an art, and that the science was just sort of like the initial dive. And then I began to understand something. And so I want to, I want to insert here spiritual logic for a moment. Either we are interconnected or we are not. If we are not, let's go home. Because there's no way to weld together discrete and individual objects to somehow force them together into what our heart yearns, which is that interconnectedness. So we're wasting our time. If it's not, then why don't we see it? Now, if it's not, I mean, if it is, why don't we see it? And if it is, and we don't see it, then it must be somehow in our misperception of things, not in the fact of things. Now, our heart, at some point, when it's finished with the science, which is the attempt to weld together discrete objects, to make it a willful and controllable experiment, at some point it falls down into the heart, which understands that the 
basic truth of life is that it's interconnected, that it's together already. When we realize that, either from the perception of things or trying so hard to force it together that, we ju- that the fatigue of that effort burns us out and then we are ready for the next step into the art. Either way, it changes the whole map of what we're doing. If things are already connected and we just don't perceive them, then we have to question everything that leads to a misperception of that fact. So I have to question all my thoughts because my thoughts seem to label and hold everything as discrete and separate. I have to question all my emotions because my emotions seem to indicate a rejection or an aversion or a, or a distant from, like anger. It's a turning away from, which is missing the fact of the interconnection that is the, the truth. So when we get oriented to what the meditation and the reality really is, our whole effort, Everything we do is applied completely different than we applied it when we were engaged in the science of the practice. So what does that mean, you see? This is it's very interesting to me. Everything is open to question. Everything is held within not the certainty of the science of knowing, but the uncertainty and mystery of wonder. And even though that terrain cannot ever be mapped, it's unmappable, the heart is more fully engaged within that wonder than it ever was within the science of the knowing. And we are closer to things because our heart is now relating from that wonder than we ever were in the certainty of the practice that we held and the procedure we were using to advance. And now we're in the realm of stillness, of quiet. Not any longer on the familiar terrain of the rational. Now, from that place, which is the only place that the reality of interconnection can be realized, it is not realized from the mind. It cannot be realized from the mind because the mind's functionality is to keep things functional. And functionality means that I know me and I know you and I know how to circumvent you to get what I want. It puts food in the mouth, and it has the heart of a slide rule. It's, it wants certainty, not ambiguity. And mostly, we want certainty, don't we? We want certainty of method. We want certainty... We want somebody to tell us how to do it. 
because we feel so cast within our own doubt. We feel that we're too alone in this thing when we go to the art. We feel the uncomfortable quality of stillness and silence. We feel the fear of losing our boundaries. And there's nothing that will keep our boundaries as firm as the science of knowing. And so the tasks that we do are really to recover that certainty. We are, in fact, defined by what we do. The doing element is so important to us. Productivity, especially in the West, defines us. We know who we are by what we have produced, what we have accomplished. That's our merit badge for living. You see, when you sit down on the pillow, what do you do? I bet you have a whole organized list. Follow my breath. If I see, if I get or become self, if there's anger, apply metta, right? (laughs) Right? You know, if there's contraction, listen to sound. We've got something to do. We just keep applying the standard measurement. It's not that that's wrong. It's just limited. Listen to me say it again. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's limited. And if I can just give you a personal perspective of this tradition, is that we give you too much to do. We don't allow enough ambiguity to settle in. We are very skilled in skillful means. Because, I mean, what can, it's easy to teach that, really. You bring A and I say B. But look at this. This is a, this is a different world. Let's look what's in front of us here. This is not the world of discrete objects. This is not the world of you and I. That's the mental formation, the mental functionality of what the mind sees. It's not the truth. Your heart knows that now. Don't betray what you know by what you see or how you see. And you begin to look at why it is that we perceive and think and believe what we do. And the mind shows you that. As we perceive it, we see that when we think, when we look through our thoughts at the world, everything is what the thought makes it to be. A thought can only make, it's, it can't make something unknown 
when the memory is held as to what something is, you see through the memory of what you know that thing to be, and it can only be held by that memory. So it's discrete and separate from all the other memory objects that you see in, when you look around. And so you begin to sense that the world of all of this variety and all of this difference and individuation has really only one purpose so that I can navigate through it. But that isn't the truth of the heart. And we feel, as we, as we have moved into the retreat, the, the activity of the mind settles down. And lo and behold, what comes out of us is the truth of the heart. You sense it. You feel it. There's a... Where do we think love? You see, this is not a... We don't have to find and discover and uncover. This is just relaxing. There's no new discovery here. It's just stop forcing the world to be what the mind thinks it is. And we discover the whole thing. And therefore, the journey becomes a journey of recovery. And so, what's the way of recovery? What, for instance, wise effort. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from what the mind thinks the world is? If your effort is coming from the, what the mind thinks the world is, then it will further create distance between things because that's all the mind can do. But if your effort is coming from the yearning, the yearning of integration, the yearning for integration, the yearning to, to return to the source, for a moment just... It, it, you can feel that... And then the whole world lights up from the intention to reunite, which comes from that yearning. But instead, we think of it, if, it, if that yearning percolates through the mind, how the mind interprets that yearning is I have to search for rather than uncover. And so we go outward to find what's inherently already there. Again, it's either, we're either interconnected or we're not. If we're not, forget it. Just walk away. Save yourself a lot of difficulty. But if it is, then use every source, every effort, every bit of energy you have to reunite to release your objections to life because that's why we don't see life for the way, the way it is. Our mind keeps objecting to everything. Release the objection. Release the resistance. Let yourself fall into reality. You see, it's so interesting that the tasks and the work and the effort has produced a wonderful work life for most of us. But how many of us 
love the qualities that the work life has engendered within us. Do you like yourself with those qualities? Your ambition? Your competitiveness? Your comparison? Your forced self-improvement? Are those comfortable qualities? When lived through the mind, those are the qualities that they will, the mind will nurture. And the yearning are for the qualities of integration, the qualities of interconnection, the qualities of compassion, of love, of patience, of generosity, of true integrity, true integrity, of stillness, That's what the heart yearns for. And so when we have presented the practice, we have presented words that invite a reunification. But our mind keeps finding the effort we need to do to get to those words. Like the word relaxation. Relaxation is not a word that creates, that you have to struggle with. Relaxation is the absence of struggle, the release from tension. It's not a doing, it's a non doing. It's the easiest and simple pointing. But what do we do? We try to relax. And then we criticize ourselves for not being relaxed enough. I had I, I run a teen class from time to time, and I had a fifteen-year-old girl in my teen class, and so we were talking about relaxation. They are so dear. <laughs> so this fifteen-year-old girl in front of all the other teens, she's, so we're talking, and she says, you know, last week I was with my family, and my family has a tendency to sort of get into crisis and drama mode. And I could see how I rise right up there into the crescendo of the, of the drama, and I'm an active part of it. And so something happened in the house, some disagreement, and all of that started flurry, started to happen. And I said, wait a second here. In my mind, I said, wait a second here. I can relax with this instead of being a part of it. And she sat down. And everybody imploded right down with her. And she comes back and she says, this stuff works. (laughs) She saw the power of that. And the ease. You see, if things are already this way, it must be much easier than we are giving it. It must be. Why don't we allow ourselves that ease, that receptivity? One of the reasons that people love the metaphrase ease and well-being, the ease, and because it invites an alignment with the truth of our relationship to life. 
May I have ease and well-being. And what we begin to see as we allow ourselves to move into the non-doing of our practice, into the art of our practice, releasing ourselves from the scientific, which doesn't mean that there aren't times when the science needs to be applied. Please understand, I'm not pitting one against the other. And there are times in everyone's practice that the science does need to be applied, no matter how long you've been sitting. There are times when I apply the science, the practice, but it doesn't fool me. And I don't think that's going to do anything except settle me down a little bit so that I can begin to see and get on with the art. But as we begin to release ourselves from the tension of doing, the tension of trying to be correct, and those are tension associated with doing. We become less influenced by time. It's not really that important in non-doing. It's, you know, as a hospice worker, I learned that so quickly at the bedside. And it usually takes about six months for a new hospice staff member to learn how not to do, but how just to rest by the bedside of the person who's dying. Because the fear is that the staff person has to look at their own mortality. So they continue to sort of crank out the doing so that they can have something to do so they don't have to look at what they ultimately have to face in themselves. That, too, is why we practice so much doing in our meditation. It's to keep the noise going. We like the racket. It keeps us from the knowledge of our our un, the unformed quality of us. We love to be formed. You see, we have to understand when we are faced with exerting ourselves in the wrong direction, which we all are, to some extent or another, you have to see how you're feeding, how you're being fed by that wrong direction. Not just dismiss it, or wish it away, but look and see how it's feeding us. It's usually feeding us in some way by, by asserting stronger definition, a stronger sense of myself. Because we have, many of us, have such a weak self-image, we look for our significance within a stronger definition. We look and seek a stronger definition because the weak definition doesn't represent anatta. It represents neurosis to us, pain. So we look and see. We, we test it out. We look. We, we search. We... We see, what, what is this offering me? Why, why do I keep doing this? What is it offering? What am, how am I feeding? What's the feed friend, feeding frenzy? Unconscious feeding frenzy that f- this pattern keeps bringing forth. 
And what is its limitation? Where is it that ultimately it causes pain? And when I look at those things both very clearly, ultimately what I'm getting from it is not worth the depletion and the pain of its continuation. But when you don't look at what you're getting from it, you can't possibly get over it. That's just denial. None of us would like to think of ourselves. We were thought as, as being caught in the way that our minds are. But until we fully orient ourselves to that particular level of pain, nothing really happens here. What do you get out of feeling inadequate? You're getting something out of it. And then we suggested relaxing with the breath. In fact, in one series of instructions, we said if the mind gets lost... So let me just show you something. This is so interesting. The mind gets lost off the breath. Did we ask our mind to leave the breath? Or did it just go? So first of all, it has nothing to do with you that the mind left the breath. It's not a mistake. You're not a bad meditator. Okay, it just happened. Now, you wake up. Did you wake up out of the breath? You woke, you knew after the fact that you had awakened, that you were out of thought. You didn't wake yourself up out of thought. This whole thing is a mystery. This whole thing is an art. This whole thing is far more rich and deep and profound than the credit, self-credit, we give the advancement of our own practice. This is... There will be times when silence will be so strong in you that you'll feel like the film on a bubble and the vastness that surrounds that film. And you'll see irrefutably, without question, what's really in charge and has always been. And your heart will just yearn. The releasing of the tension of doing, to know, to abide, not to know, to abide in that vastness. And then the mind will play forth upon that vastness never disturbing the vastness. And all of this will transpire. All of this. But nothing will be disturbed. And we can be the perfect film, but not forget the infinite. It denies nothing. But we have to orient ourselves. If we're just looking at the film, we miss everything. 
and the doing, the forced activity, keeps us just focused on the very limited power of our influence, of our control, of our will. And every time we're willing to let go of thought, what we're really doing is allowing an opportunity to see life uninfluenced in its vast condition, its vast conditionlessness. But so quickly we pick up another thought and we get... Because the noise, you see, it's so... Because the noise, it's very tender. This is not a... This is not a... You, you're... See, you begin to sense something so rich that's so out of my control that all I want to do is shut up. All I want to do is be quiet. And yet the mind continues its... And you just... it's it. So we turn to the mind and we we try... We look at the reality it's creating and we see in relationship to the vastness that we experience that this is not true. That the functionality of the world is only a perspective. It is not, does not cover the vastness. And so seeing that, the mind loses its employment, becomes unemployed. Because up until this point, that has been the definition of things. Now then, you see, now. Now what doing is called forth? Nothing fools you. Anger, fear. It doesn't fool us because the heart has taken over control, you might say. And even though those things may continue and certainly do. What, are they, what can they possibly say about anything? And so the, the ways that we are pointing, each of us in our practice, is pointing towards that. To receive experience, take ourselves out of it, Just be quiet with experience. See what experience is uninfluenced when we're not influencing it, when we're not opinionating, when we're not reacting. 
What's it like? What's the reality like? So when things move through us, the first influence that we mostly have over things is to judge it. So we keep reassuring and reinforcing non-judgment. Don't, just be quiet with it. Our words are from the words of the heart. Our words are words of non-doing. Our words are words from the mystery, from the wonder. But any time we translate a word, the mind has its own strategy associated with that word, and we come out in a doing mode. We come out and exert our influence to move in the direction of that word. What does life look like when it's not being influenced? When, we're not, when it's not under our spell, under our control? What's it look like? When it's on its own terms, When we are not weighing in. When we're not wrestling, arguing, resisting, avoiding. What's it look like? To know the truth. What does an object look like when we see it clearly? when we don't even have the need to maintain it as an object. What's it look like? What do emotions, what are emotions when they're not held together by the story of our life? Are we willing to see how harmless they really are? Or are we dedicated to persevering and working through them? What is emotion? What's the point of it? When we're inattentive, we will do a lot to try try to correct the wrong of what we see. When we're attentive, there's no wrong that we see. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is out of place. Nothing. Not a thing. Doing is the lack of trust the lack of faith. Non-doing is the embodiment of trust, the embodiment of faith. When you see irreversibly that there is nothing that needs to change in this life, that's the end of the story. 
Because if things are connected, if things are interconnected, where could there be anything wrong? That's not a logical or philosophical assumption. In fact, it makes, this makes a terrible philosophy. Everything is one. It makes the worst philosophy you could ever live in. You can do anything to anything. It gives you free determination to harm, to hurt, to ridicule, to brutalize. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not a philosophy. This is a seeing. This is a knowing. With a certainty, irrefutable certainty, All we have to do is give up our need to be defined. That's at the heart of why we do, why we effort. That's at the heart of why there's so much chatter in the mind. Let us at least orient ourselves in the proper direction to this meditation. Let's at least know how we're moving and not move counter to the truth of interconnection. Let's not pretend we're on some spiritual journey and we're going 180 degrees different than that truth. If we're not up to it, that's the fact we face. If we're ambivalent, That's the fact we face. There's nothing that can't be faced in the right alignment with the truth. I'm not up to it. I don't have the. I want to be comfortable. I don't give a damn what he says. Fine. I'm not disputing. Do it. Just be aware. What's the value you're getting out of it? What's the limitation of that particular resting? What are you getting out of it? What's it doing for you? What do you hope it does? What do you wish for? And is that the truth? Does it last? Does it offer the contentment you seek? Or is that all the things we've been saying? And then it will all move in the right direction. From that scene, from that scene, both sides of the issue. Unfooled, we no longer move from anything. And the mind. becomes trumped by the heart. And the wonder is a living wonder. Never forgotten. Never obscured. May we all know that wonder. Can we sit for a minute or two?
as we sit, I'd like to read a story, brief. This morning, I was reading Phil Cousineau's wonderful book, The Art of the Pilgrimage. In it is a story of Joseph Campbell giving advice to a young woman before she embarked on a pilgrimage to Greece. He had just given a talk to a small audience on the nature of the goddess. From the book. She had made precise calculations of the best time to visit every major cultural attraction and just where and when she would make her salutations to the different deities whose statues remained. Do you think this is sufficient, she pressed Joseph? Do you think I will find the spirit of the goddess? Joe, who had been staring at her while a parade of mixed emotions played over his features, now he took her one free hand in his and with great kindness and solemnity said, Dear lady, I sincerely hope that all does not go as planned. (laughs) With that, he slipped into his overcoat and he left the building. Sitting in the back seat of the car on the drive home, I can barely contain my curiosity. Finally, mustering all the courage of my 17 years, I leaned over the front seat and said, Mr. Campbell, that woman who was going to Greece, why did you tell her that you hoped things did not go as planned? Joseph paused as if trying to sort through all the encounters of the evening and then threw back his head and laughed with a mystic's glee. How will the gods ever find her when she has done everything in her power to make sure they never will? Then he said soberly, Unless you leave room for serendipity, for the art, for the mystery, how can the divine enter? The beginning of the adventure of finding yourself is to lose your way. So as we sit, as we sit, we have done nothing wrong. It's not as if this talk in any way corrects what we have been doing. It just asks for a different orientation, a different emphasis to receive the world rather than trying to influence to understand it rather than to know so much about it, to learn from it rather than to calculate with certainty. As we sit and we feel our mind moving within the space of awareness, are we so certain we know what all that's about? Do we sense any mystery, anything profound? Can we let ourselves be long enough that we can escape momentarily from the definition, from the certainty of who we are? And look anew at this mystery.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.